But let's get started today. This is on the liturgical calendar. This would be the fourth Sunday of Advent. This is that Sunday in front of Christmas, the arrival of the Lord Jesus. You probably don't get any higher Christian holidays than Easter and Christmas, the two that even the Protestant church admits into their services. And what I mean by even the Protestant church is a lot of the, either the Catholic world or a lot of the high church world preaches the liturgical calendar, whether it's Epiphany or Pentecost or ordinary time or whatever we're laying out for 52 weeks. And a lot of the Protestant church just kind of does whatever week to week and then lands on Easter, Jesus comes out of the tomb, and then lands on Christmas, Jesus is born. Um, I've kind of made it a point this year to pay a little more attention as a lifelong Protestant, to pay a little more attention to the liturgical calendar just because you have this enormous amount of the church body around the world that is paying attention to this and thinking on the same things Sunday to Sunday and maybe not preaching the same sermons or using the same text, but in that same mindset. And I've tried to get my mind around why, like what's the importance of that? And where I land on that is because there is this powerful sense of unity that happens knowing that the church all over the world, it's one of the great things about Easter. Like you go to church Easter morning and you know that every church in the world that claims Jesus is thinking about the resurrection. And there's just something about that where you're, you're like, this isn't just us today talking about this. There's people in every country on the globe talking about Jesus isn't in the tomb anymore. And there's something very powerful about that unseen bond, like change you can't see, but you know are real. Same thing happens at Christmas, right around this season, where you know one way or the other, they're going to be talking about baby in a manger, Jesus arrives, the first advent of Christ. And so I, that, I'm not trying to get strict with the liturgical calendar, but that calendar kind of binds the church. It gives us those thought processes that link us back to the early church. Because the early church, not that they were marking their calendars with holy days, but they were watching those signs and seasons that happen in the church world and then sort of rallying around the texts that, that deal with that. When we talk about Advent season, we're talking about the arrival of Jesus. It's God wrapped in human flesh arriving on the earth. And that arrival of Jesus is Christmas, but it's not just Christmas. It's, and I think if we just relegate it to baby in the manger, what happens to Christmas is that's when Jesus was born. And we miss out on the fact that there was this high anticipation about Jesus' arrival. Of course, his mom anticipates it. Joseph anticipates it. His family anticipates it. But there's this anticipation. I'm going to be a Matthew, but this whole thing back here is anticipating Jesus. And when you learn to read it that way, the Old Testament gets exciting. It doesn't scare you anymore. You start to see Jesus in the shadows. You start to listen to the sound of the prophets who are talking about Jesus. Where, where we get lost is they don't ever say Jesus because they don't know his name, but they know he's coming. The government's going to be on his shoulders. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, everlasting father, born in Bethlehem, born of the virgin. Those are just the big ones. Those are the obvious ones. But if you watch those moments throughout from Genesis to Malachi, it's pregnant with this idea. He's coming. God's going to deliver us. We are waiting on our deliverer to come. Now, when we look back on it from Christianity, we're 2,000 years on the other side. We look back on it. We, we tend to focus on the manger and the shepherds and the angels. Well, that's fine. What we don't focus on is the expectation, the excitement that led up to it because they knew they were getting their Savior. And when we look back on it from 2,000 years and we think of Savior, we think of sin. 
because we're real sin-minded in the church. We're not necessarily savior-minded. Isn't that odd? We're followers of Jesus and we're more sin-minded than we are savior-minded. And so we got to come into church and filter through talking about sin and testifying about sin and singing about sin and praying about sin before we ever get to the savior. In fact, a lot of our sermons are sin, 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 Jesus. Come up here and accept Jesus. You can deal with all that sin we just talked about. Now, I'm not cutting down the talking about sin. Of course, we deal in this world with our failures. It's part of what we are, but we're not disciples of failure. You would think it's the first church of sin as much as we're excited about talking about it. But the reality is, is if we look back 2,000 years on Jesus, what we've done is we've made Jesus the Savior from sin. That wasn't what anybody was looking for. They were looking for the Savior of the world. Change the world. We wish somebody would come along and flip the power dynamic. We wish somebody would come along that would rule with peace instead of an iron fist. We wish somebody would come along and allow us to bend our swords into plowshares. These are Old Testament prophecies. And who were they thinking of? They didn't know he was named Jesus, but they knew he was coming. And that's why there's that excitement in those early chapters of Matthew and Luke. Looking forward to his arrival, not because he's going to deliver us from individual sins, but because he's going to deliver his people. He's going to be the savior of the world. And what did that look like to them? Okay, maybe it didn't look right. Because yes, they thought that meant Caesar was going to die and Rome was going to collapse and God was going to sit on the literal throne on the earth and prop his feet up on the devil and all those things. That was probably in their purview. But savior was the anticipation. So we focus at this season on the baby and the manger and Bethlehem and the star and the wise men and the shepherds and the sheep. We focus on Herod and we focus on the trip to Egypt and we focus, all of that's beautiful. You know what I don't hear a lot of sermons on and so I wanna try to throw myself into that breach. I don't hear a lot of sermons on Joseph, Jesus' earthly father. And it struck me this last month, as I was praying about and thinking about where to land on this final Sunday of Advent in front of Christmas, what would be that one other thing I would want to say? And I was struck by the reality that Joseph is the last link, the last thing that has to be cleared in order for Jesus' ministry to be possible on the earth. And here's what I mean by that. Joseph is engaged to the Virgin Mary, the young Mary who shows up pregnant. Let's put ourselves in Joseph's eyes right now if we could and just imagine that Joseph sees that his soon-to-be wife is expecting and he hasn't slept with her. Okay, you don't need a medical lesson to know what runs through Joseph's mind first. And Joseph's a good Hebrew. Joseph's a good Jew. Joseph has the Torah on his side which means that Joseph has the legal right to get rid of Mary because through the eyes of man, she has cheated. And thus, the holy thing to do or the righteous thing to do is to get rid of this woman. Now, this is a big problem, of course, because if this is the child that we think that this is, to get rid of Mary is to get rid of this child, and to get rid of this child means that God wrapped in human flesh isn't going to happen. 
And there's going to be enough hot obstacles and hurdles to this baby happening. And the great one's going to be the slaughter of the innocents from Herod, who's going to kill all the babies age two and under that come out of Bethlehem. And so he's already going to have to clear that hurdle. But here's Joseph, this character that often kind of gets lost in the story because we focus on the virginity of Mary. And here's Joseph as almost this ancillary character. It's almost like he's in the way in our nativity story. Like, why does he exist at all? But here's the odd thing. If you didn't know any of this story and you just took off reading in Matthew and you took off reading in Luke, when it comes to the birth of Jesus, you would think that the most important figure in the early story of Jesus is Joseph because he's everywhere in that story of the nativity. And here's why, because he could be such a problem. He could kick her out. He could remove the Jesus from the earth. And so he has to be dealt with. And how does God do it? Strong arm him knock him over, threaten him, you better watch. No, he, Joseph goes to sleep. And the Bible gives us what I call Joseph the Dreamer 2.0. Because when we talk Joseph the Dreamer, we always think of our Old Testament character, Joseph. The young man back in the book of Genesis who has a dream and dares to tell his father about it, dares to tell his brethren about it. It's not the kind of dream you want to boast of because it was the kind of dream that had all of his brothers bowing down to him. And that's not the kind of thing you want to share at the family table. And that caused a problem for Joseph. And ultimately it turns his brothers against him. And because Joseph is a dreamer, now we're in the Old Testament Joseph. Granted, there's two central Josephs in the Bible. Old Testament Joseph, New Testament Joseph. Here's Old Testament Joseph. He's a dreamer. And he shares that dream and his brothers get jealous. And the short version of a very long story that takes up a big chunk of Genesis is that his brothers sell him off into slavery. And he ends up in an Egyptian prison cell or an, as in an Egyptian slave train. He's ultimately bought out of slavery by Pharaoh and he works his way up the, the ladder in, Israel, in Egypt. I share that little bit because I realize that sometimes we're losing those Old Testament stories. So a lot of people watching our sermons now will hear us refer to Old Testament characters and don't know who they are because we've kind of lost that base of those stories. So if you don't know anything about Joseph, the Old Testament guy, go read about him in Genesis. It will help. But he's a dreamer and it's how we characterize him, Joseph the dreamer. And ultimately he becomes an interpreter of dreams. I think it's interesting that Joseph goes down into Egypt and is an interpreter of dreams and ultimately is the source of comfort for his people. And in the New Testament, we're introduced to a second Joseph who ultimately will go down into Egypt and be part of what produces comfort for his people. And so the Old Testament Joseph is a dreamer and the New Testament Joseph is a dreamer as well. I wanna give a little more credit to the New Testament version in this message. I wanna start Matthew 1. Verse 18, I want to read NRSV. I like some of the wording in this. It's pretty readable. I want to read out of chapter 1. I'm going to make some comments as we go, but we're really going to come back and concentrate on a couple of things. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph... Listen to this verse. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, 
an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel. By the way, that is a quote from Isaiah 7, 14, which means, Emmanuel means, God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but he had no marital relations with her until she had born a son, and he named him Jesus. Seventy times in the Bible, people dream, and the dream is from God. It's an interesting number, because to the Hebrews, 70 was an explosion of fullness. When Jesus is confronted by Peter, how many times do I forgive someone who's offended me? Jesus says, 70 times 7. Why does he pick 70 times 7? Because seven's God's perfect number. 70 is the fullness of that perfect number. 70 times 7 is like, there's really no end to how many times you forgive. For the Bible to land on 70 distinct times when God visits mankind in either a dream or a vision tells me that the Bible's trying to tell you something else. And that is that God loves to speak to people. Almost nothing will get you crazier looks in modern society than to say to someone that you think you heard from the Lord. You say, I think the Lord told me. And they will look at you like, okay, it was one thing when you told me you were a Christian, but you sound like one of the weird ones that thinks God talks to people. That's fine. Count me as one of the weird ones because I still believe God talks to people. I know it doesn't sound like me talking to you. How could it? Because my voice isn't supposed to be God's voice in your ear. So it's probably not going to sound like me. It's probably going to sound a whole lot more like you, which makes a lot of sense because Christ lives in you as the hope of glory. So the voice you are familiar with sounds a whole lot like it speaks with your accent which is probably why God sounds a whole lot like you sound, or at least he speaks in a way quite familiar to you. You don't get to the end of thinking you heard from God and think, boy, it would be nice if I spoke Chinese because I think that's what he was speaking. He doesn't speak to you outside of what you know. He speaks to you precisely inside of what you know. Dreams and visions as categorized in the Bible are simply pictures of God speaking to people. Do they happen inside of dreams and do they happen inside of visions? That's what the story says. But it doesn't really matter for those of us watching from the outside. What matters is that the dreamer or the visionary heard from God. And then they took the information when they awoke and they used it. It was information that shifted their destiny. Information that caused them to go left when they were going to go right or vice versa. Because the dream spoke to them something real. It spoke to them something that confirmed something in them. Not something brand new, but something that confirmed something in them. Something they had wrestled with. Something they had wandered with. And so God makes himself clear. Both old, I'm not just talking about Old Testament. That number 70 runs across both Testaments. And by dreams and visions, I'm talking all the way up to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus who has a vision of the Lord Jesus standing in the middle of the road. Now you can argue with Paul and say men don't hear from Christ. Men don't hear from God. And Paul would have laughed at you and said, I would still be Saul of Tarsus if I didn't hear from Christ. I'm only what I am today because I believe men hear from Christ. They hear from God. You can call it whatever you want to call it, but, 
We are getting an example as the New Testament opens of a man who has a dream, not just one dream, but multiple dreams, which we'll see before we're finished, but a man who has a dream that deals with the most pertinent issue in his life at that moment. And without a doubt, the most pertinent issue in his life is the woman I'm supposed to marry is pregnant and I haven't slept with her. Okay, you don't get a bigger issue in your life at that moment than that issue. And when Joseph lays his head on his pillow that night, that's what the angel visits him about, is to say, don't worry, I've got it. And this is what I want you to do going forward. Um, sleep scientists, this stuff fascinates me actually, actually say that we dream approximately one and a half hours every night which means that our brain gives us five to six dream cycles in, in a night's sleep. Now, we don't remember them all, and we're not sure at all why we ever remember any of them. It's actually more of a miracle that we remember one than that we don't remember all six. Maybe to the point that it's why we have a long and storied history of taking dreams seriously as human beings. This isn't just a Jewish thing or a Christian thing, by the way. We take it serious because it's happening every night. And it's fascinating that it's happening in a way that plays for us a story that for the most part makes sense. Although there are things happening in the dream that don't make sense, for the most part, we go along with what the brain is telling us. And in that dream sequence, Scientifically, our brain is running a series of simulations. Simulations based on information we gave it during the day and information we've given it during our lifetime, which is why we encounter people from our lives and they sound like they do in the real world and they say things that might be familiar to us in the real world. But our brain runs this series of simulations and examinations and there's some sort of reset that happens but every now and then it's probably happened to everybody in this room every now and then you wake up and go that one was from somewhere else that one was and we might say it differently depending on our background but we would say it something like this that dream was trying to tell me something you know, that dream was trying to tell me something about me or that dream was trying to tell me something about my situation and we don't sit and dwell on it very long, but we're, we pretty readily admit that we should probably pay attention to that. Now, why is it that we do that? I think it's because we know deep in the psychology of being human and the fact that 70 times in our Bible, a full number, dreams and visions influence people's decisions that we at least take it serious enough to go, wow, somebody's trying to tell me something. And the somebody trying to tell me something might be us saying, my brain's trying to tell me this, or boy, I shouldn't have ate that before I went to bed, or boy, that did something odd to me. And so we don't chase everything down, but we've all had those moments where we know we hear from God. Now, when the Bible talks about dreams and visions, we tend to think people are asleep and people are in a trance. Their eyes kind of roll back in their head and they're seeing something off in the distance. I, I think we ought to dispense of that, okay? Because I don't think that's exactly what's meant to be conveyed when we hear about dreams and visions. And I think the fact that it happens 70 times is God saying, I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to talk to you in a way that you can understand. And when I do, you're going to know that it's me. And I don't know, you won't know how you know that it's me, but you'll know that it's me because that's what the Father does. And so I truly believe that whatever situation you're going through in life, don't wait for a dream. Don't wait for a vision. Listen for the voice of the Father. 
That's the point of the dreams and visions lesson is that God still speaks to people. This doesn't stop when you get to the Old Testament. It doesn't even stop at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Like, okay, now that we have the Holy Spirit inside of us, no more need for that. The whole book of Revelation is a vision. John's not really there. He's having a vision of what's going on there. And so we've built, we built so much of the foundations of our Christian faith on the idea that you can hear from God. And so listening to that is part of our vital call. We're going to circle back to that. Here's something that really I had never seen in my life really impressed me this week reading the Matthew 1 story of Joseph. I want to repeat something to you from verse 19. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. Did you hear that? He was righteous and he didn't want to embarrass her, so he was going to dismiss her quietly. Now, he has the right, according to Torah, to dismiss her publicly. Okay? Torah. Not only does he have the right to dismiss her publicly, he has the right to put her on public trial, according to the Torah. And do you remember John 8? When an adulterous woman is brought to Jesus who was caught in the very act and she could be stoned to death. Joseph could dig deep. He could go looking and see if he could find enough evidence. And this could be the end result for Mary is being stoned to death under Torah. Now, I always tread carefully when I get to moments like this because we're dealing with big stuff. And so I don't want to do it flippantly. I think sometimes we do that a little too much. This is a pretty big deal. Like a lot of our Christianity hinges on the events that lay out in this nativity story. So I don't want to be flippant. But I think it's pretty fascinating that Joseph is a righteous man. And yet, he's not willing to expose her to public trial, even though the Torah says he can. Shouldn't he have actually only been righteous if he exposed her to a public trial? Because by exposing her to a public trial, he would have been following the law to the letter. And that makes a man righteous, right? I mean, doing exactly what you find in here is what makes a man righteous, right? And yet, and this is a tough opening salvo for the New Testament to get, off, to get on its feet with. Think about that. Here's the opening piece of theology from the book of Matthew. Up until this point, you just had a genealogy. There's no theology packed into the genealogy. Here comes your first moment of theology. You know what the first righteous man listed in the New Testament the first righteous man listed in the New Testament refuses to put his soon-to-be wife, who's pregnant, and it's not his baby, but he refuses to put her on trial, even though he has the legal right to in the eyes of God. And he refuses to, and we call him righteous because he refused to, which tells me this. God is trying to send you a message that righteousness is not the upholding of strict rules over people's heads. Righteousness is mercy. Righteousness is watching people fail around you and not throwing the book at them, but throwing love at them. That's the opening definition of righteousness in Matthew's gospel. is to say to you, the first righteous man listed in the New Testament is a man who could have went about it through a very religious way, but he does not. Instead, he shows you the mercy of God always trumps all of those other things. Because the right thing for Joseph to do is public disgrace. The righteous thing for Joseph to do is to love Mary. So all of us deserve a little public disgrace because we've all sinned, fallen short of God's glory. We've all done things that should get us called on the carpet. We've all done things that ought to have the spotlight on our sins and our failures. 
and yet the mercy of God. I mean, that could, that's its own title, and yet the mercy of God. Because and yet the mercy of God is why I am what I am. It's why you are what you are. So from the very outset of Matthew, we're watching righteousness at work. The right thing versus what Joseph does that's called righteous. He had resolved to do it, then he has the dream. So think about this. That seems backwards. Like, he's mad, he's probably going to call her on the carpet, then he has a dream, calms him down. I think I had messed this up for years in my own mind. I, I, you don't, maybe you didn't mess it up, but let me walk you through where I was. Maybe you're there. Joseph finds out that his wife's pregnant. He gets pretty mad about it because he didn't sleep with her. So he goes to sleep and has a dream, and in the dream, God talks him out of it and goes, no, that's really a product of the Holy Spirit. And then he wakes up and goes, okay, I'm not going to kick her out. But that's not what happens. He had already resolved he wasn't going to kick her out. The dream didn't convince her to not kick her out. The dream convinced her to embrace the baby and raise it as his own. And so mercy is not the end result of you having a revelation. Mercy is how you come out of the gate. Mercy is how you respond all the time. Listen, you don't have to have a revelation of God to be merciful to people. You just have to follow Jesus. If you're a Christ follower, mercy is your default response. Why is it that we have to be talked into mercy? Like our first response is judgment, reciprocity, people ought to get what they deserve. But I'm going to go pray about it. And what I'll do is as I'll kind of come down from my emotion and then I'll show mercy. And interestingly enough, in Matthew 1, Joseph's first response is mercy and the dream prompts him to embrace what's not his. Mercy and then grace. Mercy, don't do what she deserves or what I think she deserves. And then a revelation and grace starts to pour out of him. He actually becomes a giver after he has a revelation. So here's what I think ought to happen in believers. We spend a lot of time in the grace circles talking about grace as this like trump all theology, like this trump all idea. So whatever verse comes up and you go, well, grace changed that. Or whatever, we go, well, grace does this. Our default position is to look like our father and his default position is mercy should be the very first thing in our response. Grace doesn't come as easy for us because grace is the giving of what people can't earn. All right? Mercy is withholding what people deserve. Grace is the giving of what people can't possibly earn. So we almost have this instinct that people ought to at least jump a little bit before we give them anything. Like you ought to try a little bit and then I'll meet you halfway. And so we, we kind of have to work through that. That comes to us by revelation. As we spend time with Jesus, we become more gracious. Let me try to say that in a complete way. Follow Jesus. Mercy rewrites your life code. Mercy becomes your defining quality. Why? Because he's so merciful to me. Spend time with Jesus grace becomes what you give to people, okay? I don't think we have to go spend time with Jesus to learn to be merciful. We, we don't have to have a revelation to learn to be merciful. Re mercy comes out of us as we follow him. It's the default position of who he is. Joseph is righteous in that he is merciful. And then Joseph becomes gracious 
in that he raises this Jesus as if he is his own. Why is this so vital to Jesus? Here's one of the unfortunate things about, I must say, I say this very tongue in cheek. Here's one of the unfortunate things about the Gospels. <laughs> um, they don't give you a lot of insider, inside baseball, like bio stuff. Okay, we don't get to see six-year-old Jesus hanging out with Joseph, his earthly father. We don't get little nine. The only the closest we get, you guys know the story, 12-year-old Jesus. And poor 12-year-old Jesus gets left in Jerusalem by his family. They don't even know he's gone for 48 hours. They have to go back and get him. So I don't know. Maybe things weren't so, you know, maybe they weren't quite the same there as they are here in the way children were raised. That's obviously for sure. But we don't get that. We don't get Jesus from like age 2 to age 12. There's a decade gap. We actually do get age 2 Jesus because... That's probably the reason why Herod kills baby boys two and under, because based on where the star was, Jesus has probably been on the earth two years. So Herod's like, kill off those boys. And so we don't get it. But, okay, so let's get creative, shall we? And when you get creative, you're not, not trying to create like new gospels, new versions of the story. We just use life experience to try to tell you how something might have went down. And we'll use something we know went down in Jesus' life. Okay, for instance, we know Jesus. There's no mention of Joseph by the time Jesus is in ministry. So somewhere between the age of 12 and the age of 30, Joseph dies. Because all we have is his mother and his brethren by the time he goes into public ministry. So in that 18-year gap, he loses his earthly father. But his earthly father is the first natural man mentioned in the New Testament, Joseph. And his story encompasses almost nearly a chapter of the very first gospel. So I can't believe that Joseph didn't play a vital role in raising the Jesus we know at age 30. Because if the gospels take so much pain to include Joseph's grace into the story, then Joseph's grace had to be a part of Jesus' life. And let me give you an example of where it would have been necessary for the dreamer, Joseph, to be real in Jesus' life. Because we all tend to think Jesus thought of God as his father, and so he goes, me and my father are one, and that he probably didn't look at Joseph as his father. I think we're wrong. Because Jesus comes into an awareness of of his call by age 12. I was about my father's business, okay? Which means that, and and that was the age of bar mitzvah. That's the age where a Jewish boy becomes a Jewish man. So that age 12 business is Jesus shedding off the childhood Jesus and starting to pick up the ministry Jesus at 12. And so he knows his father's will. Me and my father are one. But in that preceding dozen years, that decade between age 2 and age 12, Jesus is raised as any other Jewish boy would be in the backwaters of the Roman Empire in Palestine. And he's raised going to synagogue. And he's raised hearing Torah. And he's raised hearing the stories of his father. And let me show you one. Let me just tell you one that I think had to be one of the most poignant, one of the most powerful that Jesus had to endure. Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus did not have a peer of his gender from his hometown? Because every baby born to and under in Bethlehem was slaughtered at the hands of Herod. And Jesus was raised knowing that his existence cost a whole village full of boys their life. 
Think about that. He carried that with him every day. I don't know, as that became an awareness, if you, if you could carry that weight. That's impossible. I'm the reason why your little baby was taken out of his crib and slaughtered right in front of you because you had the unlucky misfortune of living in the same town that I did. And I'm coming to an awareness that I'm here to save the world, but it seems like I got off to a really bad start. Like rather than saving the world, I shattered a few people's world. And I've heard it more than once from more than one unhappy family. And I just got to think that Joseph had to take him off to the side and tell him the story of how he heard from God and what the dream sequence meant that convinced him that Jesus was who he thinks he is. You have no idea when God is speaking into your life what that word will mean for the next generation. You have no idea what it will mean for the people important to you, the people around you. Because as you hear from God and you walk this out, you don't hear from God in a vacuum to where whatever God says to you is not applicable to anyone around you. In fact, it becomes a reality to everyone who encounters you. What you've heard from God shapes you to go face the world. It shapes you to go to your job. It shapes you to raise your children. It shapes you to be a spouse. It shapes you because it shifts not just from a place of mercy, but to a place of grace. You go from not just not judging your neighbor, but to being valuable in the life of your neighbor because you've had a revelation of God. I think it's quite possible that Jesus needed taken aside a few times as a kid and reminded of the dreams that Joseph had because it was in those dreams that Joseph learned of Jesus' importance. And Jesus' importance is the very reason why those kids died in Bethlehem. No, Jesus, it wasn't your fault that it happened. The world is an evil place full of evil people. And death and chaos often come in on the back of beauty. And yet, it's something that we're going to have to deal with, Jesus. It's something you're going to have to think about. It's something you're going to have to live with. And maybe it'll cause you as you walk into your ministry and you go do what you do, it will cause your heart to break for those who have lost their kids. And it will cause you to know the pain of separation and of, and of failure and of the boot of an empire pressing down upon your neck. Because you lived with this over your head, you can go help take that burden off of other people who are living with that. We overlook the story of Joseph because we overlook people dreaming. We overlook the story of Joseph because we overlook people hearing from God. And yet, every day of our lives, every time we hear from God, it influences another generation because it causes us to take the steps that influence our future, that cause us to go left or to go right, that cause us to move forward when we just want to lay down, that cause us to get up when we just want to quit because we've heard from God, because we spend time with Him. It's why... You can't spend too much time listening to his voice, seeking his face, because the words that come out of that are words that change destinies, that change futures, that, that influence the world forever. Verse 21, let me give you a couple, just a couple thoughts. Verse 21 of Matthew 1, she will bear a son. This is what the angel says to Joseph. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Anglican word 
for the Greek uh, that comes from the Hebrew. And so they never heard the word Jesus, okay? They heard Yeshua, which would have been translated into English as Joshua. And so there were a lot of little Joshuas running around because it was an honor name. If you named your kid Joshua, you were naming him after the great general of the faith from the Old Testament. But what it meant to a Hebrew was Savior. If you name a kid Joshua, he's going to save somebody from something. It's interesting that the angel said he's going to save the people from their sins. Let me just comment on this real quick. It's, it's a little sidebar, but it's worth it, I think. When we think saved from our sins, we think individual sins. Jesus saved me from my sins. When Israel heard save us from our sins, they thought the reason they were under the oppression of the Roman Empire was the national sin of abandoning the poor, the widow, the stranger, and the fatherless. Because every time in the Old Testament that they did that, they lost the land and they got taken over by another invader. If you don't take care of the poor, the widow, the stranger, and the fatherless, another nation comes in and crushes Israel. And then they repent, and God delivers them from that king, and they start to get their land back, and lo and behold, what happens? They abandon the poor, the widow, the stranger, and the fatherless, and then another king comes in and crushes them, and then they repent, and God delivers them, and they start to get their land back, and then they forget the poor and the widow and the stranger and the father. You see the circle? And you know what sin was? The sin of forgetting the poor, the widow, the stranger, and the fatherless. And when Jesus comes, he's going to deliver us once again. We're going to get another deliverer because they had had deliverers before. And their deliverers, like Joshua of old, would deliver them. Or like Judah the, Ma- the hammer Maccabees from 400 years before Christ had delivered them from old. And we're going to get another deliverer to deliver us from our sins. And so it was, they were always thinking in national terms. I told you that because that's why it was so shocking when Jesus shows up at the Jordan and John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Why didn't he say, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away Israel's sin? Because Jesus wasn't, he was different than the other deliverers. He wasn't here to save Israel from Rome. He was here to save all of us from the system of the world. He was here to inaugurate a new kingdom. He was here to say, all of the kingdoms of this earth are going to bow to the kingdoms of our God. And Jesus is the king of that kingdom. So when you see something like he'll deliver his people from their sins, what you're seeing is he'll deliver Israel from, this is the way they thought of it, he'll deliver us from the sin that got us underneath Rome. Which is why when Jesus dies and resurrects, two disciples are walking down the road to Emmaus and they see Jesus, but they don't know it's Jesus because their eyes are blinded. Remember this from the book of Luke? And they say, we thought he was the one that would redeem Israel. Listen to the disappointment in their voice. We thought he was the one that would redeem Israel. We were wrong. He didn't redeem us from anything. We know better. He redeemed us from everything. But what they were thinking was, knock Caesar off his throne, kick Rome out of Palestine, give us our land. That's what he's here to do. And I'm here to say, I I believe this is the message of the new covenant, that God gave the world to Jesus. And so there's no piece of property that anybody's waiting on as an inheritance. The world, 
The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He is the king over all the kingdoms. Man doesn't need to inherit a piece of property. We've inherited Jesus who is over all the property. That Christ is all, in all, everywhere, for all. Joseph is the first guy to really get this revelation. Joseph the dreamer 2.0. He gets this and that moves him forward. And because he gets this, he wakes up. And he does exactly what the dream told him to do. And when you hear from God, this is not the end of the story, guys. It's not it. It's not just like it's over. Because he continues to speak in our lives. He continues to talk to us as we walk this out. Joseph has another dream in Matthew 2. And the angel tells him to take his family down into Egypt. And then when he goes down into Egypt and he spends some time there, he has another dream. And the angel says, take your family back to Israel. And when he's on his way back to Israel, he has another dream. And the angel says, don't go all the way home. Stop off in Nazareth and raise your kid there for a while. And then I'll show you when you can move again. And it's a series of dreams that keeps Jesus safe. The single most important human being on the earth in the life and ministry of Jesus for the first 24 months of his life is his earthly father, Joseph. All because he says yes when he dreams. When he wakes up, he goes, okay, God has spoken. This is what we're going to do. And because we listen to what God is saying, it's not as if we have to fall asleep and have an actual dream. Um, humorously, as I was working on this message this week, and your brain pulls different things together from your life and throws them into dreams so that they're real, but they're a little wrong, like stuff's a little off, you know? Like when you, you don't always realize it till you wake up. What's that line from Inception where DiCaprio says, you didn't realize that something was wrong with the dream till you woke up? That's true. So I'm studying for this message. I've got it in my head. I had already kind of locked this one away. I'm thinking about Chapin now because the other message is going to be preached in front of this one. And I had to think about Sermon on the Mount Tuesday night. So you got all this stuff and you're doing podcasts. He goes, I'm writing Jonah. So you got like 12 things happening. And there's all these strings you're trying to hold together theologically. So you kind of shelf stuff. So I fall asleep one night and have a dream. And in the dream, I'm editing video because that's a big part of my life is editing video. So... Thanks, brain. Like I need more of that when I fall asleep. <laughs> so I'm clicking and I'm, and I'm putting it up on the screen. And this isn't a real big story, but it was just kind of something to me. Um, and for some reason, I introduced, you know, I, I put my name on there. Like I'll put Paul White in the title of the sermon. And on that, in that dream, I had put Paul White, Jesus enthusiast. <laughs> <laughs> and I woke up. And I woke up thinking, Paul White Jesus enthusiast. That was a, that was a pretty good idea. <laughs> so I got bumper stickers. They'll be available Tuesday night. $4.99 a piece. I don't really know what that dream meant. I just know that it was interesting. It was like my brain knew I had been thinking about dreaming and, and dwelling on dreaming and went, okay, here, I'll throw you one. See what you think of this. Um, I didn't, it, didn't, it didn't influence my spiritual direction, but it did kind of please me a little bit. I went, well, my brain, it knows what's up. It is a Jesus enthusiast. Um, let me show you one more verse because I want to I land this with the Holy Spirit in mind so that we know this is not just an uh, allegorical, because that's how we can look at some of the Joseph stuff and go, that's allegorical. 
Acts chapter 2, I want, to, I want to just read you one verse, one of the most famous moments of any post-resurrection sermon ever preached in the New Testament. What I'm going to show you is the Apostle Peter. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people are saved at the end of this sermon he's about to preach. What has just happened is all the people in one place, one mind, one accord, the Holy Ghost falls. Everyone has cloven tongues of fire setting on them. They all begin to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gives the utterance. And Peter takes the opportunity because the Holy Spirit has laid the, the grounds fertile. So Peter thinks it's time to preach a sermon, and he does. And he pulls because if you're going to preach, open with Scripture is a good place to start. So he doesn't have the New Testament. He has the Old. And so he pulls from the book of Joel and preaches from Joel 2 and says this, just one verse, Acts 2.17. There's a lot of verses. I'm not going to read them all. Just, I want to read this first one. In the last days, it will, be, it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Look at what God says will happen at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't mean that if you're getting, having a vision, you're young, and if you're having a dream, you're old. Visions and dreams were the language of the unseen. And God promises that one of the hallmarks of Holy Ghost encounters, Holy Spirit encounters, is that you get a word from God. And what does the word do? It leads you and guides you into truth. It takes you from just being merciful to being gracious. You learn how to give as you hear. And I don't want to talk about money. You learn how to give of yourself as you hear from God. This is one of the hallmarks of the Holy Spirit. So don't just see this as an allegory that we're supposed to maybe dream and we'll learn something once in a while out of a dream. The dreams and visions prophecy of the Holy Spirit is that when the Holy Spirit enters the church, every single person, every single person gets to hear from God. It's not just the preacher. It's not just the deacon. It's not just the church leader. It's not just the priest. Every person, he says, I'll pour it out on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on slaves and men, even slaves, I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. In other words, the hierarchy of who gets it is gone under the Holy Spirit. Whoever you are, he says, you'll hear from God. So don't ever think, well, I would hear from God if I was leading a church or if God had called me into ministry, he'd speak to me more often. No, you have the Holy Spirit. This is the promise. This is the whole reason the church exists. Let me say that one more time so that we, that be, let that be one of the last things you hear today. This is the reason the church exists. It's so that every single one of you get to hear from God. Did you know that? We all think, well, the church exists, so we'll go save the lost. He can save the lost without you. He saved Paul, and he didn't get any help. Saul of Tarsus, none of the evangelists could reach him. I don't even know if they tried. I mean, who tried to win Saul of Tarsus to Jesus? No one. Jesus won him. So this whole idea that the church exists to win the lost. I went to church as a kid all the way into ministry 
saying that the reason we go to church is to win the lost. And that's why we tried to have a revival service every Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night to get everybody saved. Even though everybody in church was already saved, we had to get everybody lost during the sermon so that we could get everybody convicted during the invitation so that we could get everybody resaved during the invitation because it's really hard to go to heaven. You're probably going to hell. Get up here and get saved. Yeah, but I got saved last Sunday. Yeah, but that was last Sunday. And God knows all the stuff you've done in the last week since last Sunday. So get up here and get resaved again. Does that sound like anybody else's church? Because that's what I came up in. It's a wonder I'm alive. I got, I got saved a lot, though. Like, a lot. People say, when did you get saved? When did I not get saved? You don't even know what you're asking. When did you get saved? I got saved all the time. So you go, church exists so people get saved. No, the church doesn't exist so people will get saved. The church exists for each other. We are a body of believers who are here to encourage one another. But in that, we exist so that people have the understanding and the outlet to hear from God. And here's how I know that. Because God's plan in the book of Exodus is God told Israel when they came out of Egypt, he said, I am going to make you a nation of priests. What's a priest? Priests get to talk to God. God goes, I'm going to make you a nation of priests. And here's what Israel did. Israel said to Moses, you go tell God that we'd rather him talk to you because we're scared to talk to him. And Moses went up the mountain with that and said, here's what Israel said. They don't want to be a nation of priests. They want me to talk to you. And God said, okay. So you take this law down to them and you tell them how it's going to be. And you don't want to live where you can't hear from God. You want to know why there were so many problems back there in the Old Testament? Because you didn't get to hear him. Somebody else heard him for you. You don't want to go to a church where you can't hear from God. You don't want to go sit under a ministry where you're not allowed to hear from God. Oh, did pastor so-and-so preach that? If he hadn't preached that, you're not allowed to hear that. Get out as fast as you can get out. Like you can't peel out in the parking lot fast enough out of that church if you're not allowed to hear from God because you're trying to be pushed into an old covenant paradigm. In the new covenant, he says, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon all flesh and the sons and the daughters get to dream dreams and prophesy and have visions and even the slave. He goes, I don't, he, why the slave? He goes, the lowest end of the total bowl, whoever that is, whatever, that, they get to hear from the Holy Spirit. So God got his wish because God wins, by the way. If he wants a nation of priests, dadgummit, he's gonna have a nation of priests. He may have to go through all that Sinaiic stuff, work his way all the way to Calvary, but he's going to come down here in human flesh and die as a man raised again and go, you know what? I'm going to make a bunch of priests. I'm going to pour my spirit into people that will listen. And so that's what he's doing. So Joseph the dreamer just shows you how to dream. In other words, he just shows you how to listen. Pay attention. He's talking. Now what's it going to look like for you? I don't know. That's the beauty of this. It's not cookie cutter. It doesn't look like it looks for Joseph. It didn't look like for Joseph what it looked like for Paul. It didn't look like for Paul what it looked like for Peter. I mean, Peter sees a vision of a bunch of animals in the middle of the, his lunchtime in Acts chapter 10. And God says, take, kill, and eat. He never seen anything like that in his life. Paul has an actual vision of the actual Jesus, so bright that his eyes go blind on the road to Damascus. I don't know what it looks like for you. But I know it's your honor to find out. If you're not doing that, that's not on anyone but you. Not that 
if you're not hearing from God, you should feel guilty. But if you're not seeking him, hey, I get to hear from you. So, Father, I'm listening. What, do you, what would you have me to do? My son asked me a question this week. If he ever asked me a spiritual question, I really pay attention because he, he only asks like three in his life. <laughs> I mean, really. I mean, he's, God bless him. He's, he's just, but he's, he doesn't ask them. And he asked me this week and he said, Dad, how do you know that it's Jesus talking to you and not you talking to you? I said, that's a good question. I said, because the truth is, when you first start listening, you don't. But it's going to sound a lot like you. Because he lives in there. And he knows the voice that you're used to hearing. So it's going to sound a lot like you. I said, you're going to have to learn to practice. Practice means you're going to try and you're going to fail. And practice means you can get back up because he doesn't leave. He stays in there and he keeps talking. He's a God of dreams and visions. He's a God who keeps talking. He's a God. And, and you'll know because he'll lead you into peace. And wherever it wasn't peace, you'll know it was you and not him. And what will happen, son, is that the longer you do it, the, the less it will sound like you and the more it will sound like him. And you'll know because it will always lead you to peace. Take and practice this. All right? Practice means be prepared to fail too. Okay? You don't get it right in practice. You, get it, you do it in practice so you'll get it right in a game. Well, the whole, the whole thing's one big game, yes, but we get the luxury of practicing with the Holy Spirit. Let Him do the work in us, all right? Uh, I had a couple quotes that uh, I was going to put on the screen for you, but it didn't work out that way for us. So I'll tell you what, I'm just going to read them to you. And I know you don't have, um, you don't have the screens, you can't take a picture, but... I'll read them, and that'll be how we close, all right? This is from, I want to give you one pro, one con. I want to give you one pro dream, and I want to give you one warning quote on dreams, because I think that's necessary. So I won't stay on it long, because you won't be able to read them. But this is from Frederick Buchner, who wrote a book called A Room Called Remember, Uncollected Pieces. If the Christmas tale is true, it is the chief of all truths. What keeps the wild hope of Christmas alive in a world notorious for dashing all hopes is the haunting dream that the child may be born again in us, in our needing, in our longing for him. I like that. I thought that was a good... It's that, it is the haunting dream that perhaps he is born again in me. Just spent some time with Chapin this, this last Friday and ministered on the fact that Bethlehem... Micah 5 says, Bethlehem of Ephrathah. And no one ever says, oh, little town of Bethlehem of Ephrathah. We just say, oh, little town of Bethlehem. <laughs> Aside from the fact that it's a tongue tire, it's also a bit of a downer. Bethlehem means house of bread. Ephrathah means ash heap, the place where you buried Rachel. So you just lost someone. But I ministered that greatness comes out of the place of your ashes. Jesus has to be born right next to Ephrathah because it was fitting for the king to be born next to your pain. Like, he wasn't born in Rome and he wasn't born in Jerusalem. He was born next to whatever is broken in you. And that's that haunting dream that perhaps out of my pain, something great can be birthed. And, and I want to quote Dietrich Bonhoeffer from his book, Life Together. This is a posthumous collection of Bonhoeffer writings. God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. 
The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He stands adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of brethren. He acts as if he is the creator of the Christian community, as if his dream binds men together. When things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. So he becomes first an accuser of his brethren, then an accuser of God, and finally the despairing accuser of himself. When the morning mists of dreams vanish, then dawns the bright day of Christian fellowship. The negative aspect is believing that your dream applies to everybody around you and everybody else is supposed to help you build it. Mm -hmm. We've built churches on that garbage. Mm -hmm. Your dream is not everybody's dream. The voice for you is not the voice for everybody. All right? Be careful. Listen to him. Follow him. Don't follow him through me. Don't follow him through him. Follow him. Disciples of Jesus. Father, thank you for the word today. Thank you for my friends who've gathered here together. Thank you for this wonderful opportunity to see Jesus through Joseph the dreamer. Maybe, Father, we've just opened our hearts a little bit to hear a little better. Whatever we take away from this, may it be Jesus in the center that we realize that what is really happening in all of us is this wonderful privilege and opportunity to hear the voice of Christ beckoning us onward and this blessed hope that maybe he's born right here in the midst of whatever's going on in us. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.